It's a sign of the times that I'm recording the introduction to this podcast at 5.30am from an unfinished room in my basement. It's about the only time and place that I can find some quiet away from my three small children as I work from home these days. Due to the coronavirus lockdown, schools in Ontario have been out for more than three weeks now and it doesn't look like they'll be heading back to class anytime soon. Not that I'm complaining, both my partner and I are just about managing to balance working from home alongside our new roles as teachers and daycare supervisors. And there isn't a day that goes by that we don't remind ourselves that, in the current climate, we're incredibly fortunate to be holding on to what we have and, even if it seems completely mad at times, we'll keep muddling through. Indeed, if our own little family lives have changed dramatically, then what about the rest of Canada and the rest of the world? As I record this, we're 100 days into this crisis. That's 100 days since the 1st of January 2020, the day that police in Wuhan, China, closed down the wet market, where the virus, we now call COVID-19, apparently jumped the species barrier to humans. Here are some quick facts on the current state of play. According to the World Health Organization, today there are more than 1.4 million confirmed cases of COVID-19 worldwide, with 82,000 200 deaths. 381 Canadians have died with nearly 18,000 confirmed cases in this country. The Organisation for Economic Cooperation and Development, the OECD, has confirmed that all major economies in the world have now entered a recession. Further, according to the International Labour Organisation, the ILO, part of the United Nations, the pandemic is expected to wipe out the equivalent of nearly 200 million jobs worldwide, as more than four-fifths of workers around the world are now in countries affected by some measure of lockdown. Workers in the informal sector, nearly two-thirds of the world's labour force, are hardest hit and require income support just to survive under these conditions. By the end of March, nearly one million Canadians applied for employment insurance in one week, representing nearly 5% of the workforce and a new record. Similarly, record-breaking job losses are true across all five continents, while governments spend or are promising to spend truly eye-watering amounts of cash in an attempt to stop the bottom entirely falling out of our national and world economies. And the thing is, we aren't even near the end of this pandemic yet. In Quebec, currently the focal point of the Canadian epidemic, experts suggest that a peak in cases will be reached in less than two weeks from now. But how long will it take for all this to go back to normal? And what will a new normal be after all this is over? To try and get a grip on what this means, I spoke to two of the foremost experts in Canada's political economy. Sips, his own professor, Jacqueline Best, and Carleton University's professor, Randall Germain, both via video chat. Oh, and just a warning, as I mentioned, under these conditions it was very hard to find some space without some some kind of noise going on. So if you hear what what sounds a bit like noise from zoo animals in the background, please rest assured that it is in fact just my children entertaining themselves. I really hope you enjoy our conversation. I began by asking Jackie and Randall to introduce themselves and their expertise. My name is uh, Jacqueline Best. I'm a professor in the School of Political Studies at the University of Ottawa. I work on questions of uh, economic crises, a lot of work on economic crises, uh, on the, the role of expertise, uh, recent interest in uh, economic ignorance, 
and also a lot of work recently on um, economic exceptionalism. And all of these, of course, are coming together today. Yeah, my name is Randall Germain. I teach uh, political science at Carleton University. And like Jackie, my area of, of research is international economy. Um, I've published and researched uh, kind of the history of the organization of the global financial system and of global financial governance. Um, and more recently, I've got an interest in how we've thought of, uh, of IPE uh, over the years and especially uh, how our thinking includes uh, some kind of historical dimension, uh, which uh, is uh, never a useless thing to do in a case like this. Great. Well, perhaps just leading from that then, um, it's come a bit of a cliche to say these are unprecedented times. I feel like it's been unprecedented times for about five years ago now, and it's keeps getting even more <laughs> out, of the, out of the ordinary. Um, and we've had, you know, almost every indicator you look at is, uh, it seems like the world is going from crazy to crazier. So how bad is the global economy uh, today? And, and you know, could you identify some of the key challenges that are creating other than the obvious perhaps? <laughs> sure. Yeah. Well, I think uh, if you're interested in, in measuring these things, uh, every single indicator that you look at uh, with very few exceptions, some aspects of the, of the tech indus- uh, sector are, are, are a little bit different here, but, but almost every indicator has uh, fallen off a cliff uh, or is engaged in a very, very steep descent. I mean, uh, you know, when they come to publish Levels of economic activity for uh, you know the first two quarters of this of this year it, it's it's going to uh, I think be um, it, well un- <laughs> I have a list of na- words here that I can use as as uh, synonyms for un- unprecedented uh, but it's really going to be uh, un- unprecedented so I think I think things are pretty bad uh, things are are, are are terribly bad and um, and the you know the uh, the most important aspect I think for me. Um, of looking at this is that what has happened uh, as a, the, the major part of the response to um, the COVID-19 uh, pandemic is that the flow of everything that we measure in an economy has just been cut. Uh, uh, that's flows of money, uh, for the most part, some exceptions we can talk about later, uh, flows of, uh, of people, of, you know, the only thing that's flowing very, un- very freely is information. Um, and that's probably, you know, mostly helpful. But I think the, if you think about the way in which an economy works, it works by, by circulating goods and services, money and ideas and people, uh, from, from, you know, one person to the next and one area to the next. Uh, that has been almost totally disrupted. And that's really the reason why the, um, the economic, uh, consequences of this are really just have never been seen before. And that comes, as, as your question kind of um, uh, indicated, that comes after 10 years of very, very uh, uneven and uh, in many respects feeble economic growth from the financial crisis of, of a decade ago now. Um, and, you know, who wouldn't want to trade that crisis for, for what we have today? Because that was just a crisis of one part of the economy. That was a crisis of, of how we organize our money and our credit um, with certain spillovers. Uh, but, the, you know, much of the world hasn't really fully recovered from that. We've had 10 years of, you know, hesitant growth. I mean, Italy is, you know, going to be going into its third or fourth recession. If any things, uh, Europe the same. So, so it's, yeah, it's pretty grim. Jackie? <laughs> you want to add to that? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, 
two things. One, I guess I would agree with Randall very much that it's part of what's the challenge is that fact that we never really got back to normal after the last crisis. And so we're dealing with a whole range of um, problems uh, in the economy that were large, were somewhat papered over, you know, but we were already had very low interest rates. We'd never managed to get them back up to normal. So central banks have had to move almost in, immediately to unconventional measures because there's really nothing left. You get it down to 0.25 and then you have to do something else, right? Um, but also many of the steps taken in the last time, um, some of the more creative steps, for example, used by other banks, not the Bank of Canada, but uh, the Federal Reserve Bank, the ECB, the Bank of England, a lot of those measures, like quantitative easing, had other unexpected imp implications also. So, but they were buying up assets, buying up bonds, and um, in, in some cases, including in the private sector, and that had two effects. One, two you know, perverse effects. One, it actually increased further and deepened inequality because it created an asset bubble, which only the very rich were able to benefit from. Um, and on the other hand, it turns out they also um, put a lot of extra money into fossil fuel intensive development unintentionally, but that was just the effects of what, you know, the central banks trying to be neutral but neutrality, unfortunately, in the existing playing field means you end up tilting towards to intensifying the climate crisis. So we were already in a situation where a lot of the responses to the last crisis were um, insufficient or problematic. And then we move into this situation, um, which I would say the one thing I would add to, I think Randall really captured it beautifully, but I would say what's so interesting in a way, what's so, so distressing is that Normally we have, so we had a credit crisis, you know, last time around and some movement of money around. Um, in a regular kind of recession, you end up often with a crisis of demand, right? People don't have the money in their pockets to spend. Well, this crisis started off as a crisis of supply, right? That you, you can't actually, people can't get into proximity to produce the stuff. And of course that, that is, is extremely unusual. And having that crisis of supply then knocks on into and produces obviously the worry is it produces a crisis of demand because, you know, people can't buy stuff. They're afraid of buying stuff. They don't have the paycheck mm -hmm. to buy stuff with. Um, and then the fear is that also ultimately knocks on into and can down the line produce a credit crisis if the financial system, if this creates, intensifies corporate debt problems, other kinds of problems, and, and the, the sort of, again, that sort of circulation system of money breaks down. So it's a very unusual in that sense, having, you know, at least the two at once now, the supply and demand, and then obviously... Um, worries about uh, aspect of it as well. And that's why the responses are so exceptional and unusual, right? We're, mm. we're not responding mm. the way we problem it. Okay. So you're saying that, it, that, that it's both quantitatively and qualitatively different from the 2008 financial crisis. And, and obviously because it's caused by different things, but also that means that the, the measures like quantitative easing, printing money, uh, uh, buying bonds and that kind of stuff, they simply won't work in this case. Well, they're needed, but they're not sufficient. Yeah. Right. So you can do that. The central bank can can and is doing everything in its powers to, for example, make sure that banks are that the governments can simply, um, you know, throw money out there, knowing that the, the you know the bank is going to be buying up their bonds, and that ultimately they're not going to have a problem of of you know this is not going to push up their interest rates. It's not going. You know, there's no squeeze on them. They can they can do what they need. So the central banks need to do that. They need to do a whole, you know, they need to support the financial system, make sure that private sector borrowers um, and firms have you know, what they need. They, need, they, they can do a, a number of things, but that's, that's really just the beginning in yes. terms of what, what government needs to do. 
And so, yes, they're also going to get out there and support demand in various ways, but they're also, you're seeing, they're actually setting up this more, and that's where you see these comparisons with the wartime economy. They're also actually organizing production in some ways, which again, we have not seen for a very long time. Yeah. And, and, and I, one thing I would add to that is that, you know, the, um, the, the last crisis, which both Jackie and I have, have written on was, uh, you know, in a way, a kind of a crisis that originated in a very specific part of, of of the you know the American economy and then then the global economy and so the way in which it was responded to uh, was quite was quite focused they they bought up banks and they pumped money money into the economy so there, in this today there is no as Jackie pointed out there is no uh, app, uh, no um, dearth of liquidity in the system I mean there's lots of money being injected into the system and and with the with the promise of huge amounts I mean the you know between the Bank of Canada and the Fed and the, the ECB etc I mean there's no lack of money being put into the system but what's really unusual about this uh, economy going forward um, is it how is how to to kickstart uh, demand, right? And, and, you know, one of the things right. to look for down the road, you know, we've had a lot, there's been a lot of, of discussion about, about the importance of, you know, bricks and mortar retail, you know, uh, uh, stores and, and how we, a change in the process of how we actually buy things, you know, online versus well, this is going to be a really interesting test about that. Uh, because I, I, I mean, and I wonder, uh, you know, quite, how much online buying we're going to be able to do that actually will generate the amount of demand that will be needed to to draw all of that liquidity that's in the system but not yet circulating. Uh, and so uh, the difference then is there's a psychological aspect to mm-hmm. to this crisis because it's a you know initially a health a health kind of care crisis a pandemic uh, that that is I think going to be a very um, intriguing uh, switch to pull. When are we going to go out and congregate and circulate? And, you know, whether it's going to markets, whether it's going to shops, whether it's going to, you know, to actually buy all to, to support all of that, that uh, the, uh, the economic infrastructure that is geared around that part of our activity. If we don't go to bars and we don't go to, you know, we don't travel, we don't go, to, we don't become tourists for our vacations, uh, uh, that, you know, that's like removing somewhere 30% of, uh, of the basis of our economic activity. Uh, and I kind of wonder, you know, at what point will that get back to, to normal? And, you know, banks can put money into the system, uh, the central banks and regular banks, uh, you know, until the cows come home. But if they can't get us to go and do that, uh, that's going to be, I think, a really interesting uh, a nut to crack. Okay, we're going to talk about inequality in a, in a, in a moment. Um, but, it, but the other, I suppose one thing you just uh, that occurred to me there is, is that of course if we're buying all our stuff from from online uh, retailers rather than these bricks and mortar shops and whatever, we're we're, we're effectively channeling, channeling the money that we have to already very large and powerful conglomerates like Amazon or, or, or whatever. Yeah, this is one of my. I mean, I, I have this sort of where does it go next? We can get into that, but there's sort of the the silver lining side and there's the dark lining, you know, and one of my anxieties and we, I teach when I teach, you know, I do intro to political economy. It's just, it's about everyday political economy. And we talk Mm -hmm. about stuff like, you know, what is Amazon? (laughs) You know, what are these big firms? You know, we also talk about, you know, what are you, how are you going to manage your student debt? And will you ever buy a house? Um, And if not, why not? And why have we messed you guys over? Right. (laughs) Why did my generation mess you over? So, but that sort of the question of one of the other interesting things we've seen, not just in the last 10 years, but you say the last 20 years is the emergence of these mega corporations. 
which do not, you know, they're not, I mean, it's an oligopoly. They don't work like a capitalist economy, mm -hmm. hypothetical ideal mm -hmm. sense is going to work at all. They have massive structural power. Um, now, and, the, and they're not being regulated and managed partly because the way the law treats antitrust and so on has become um, deeply conservative, actually, because of the Chicago, you know, actually the Chicago boys who are responsible for the sort of neoliberalism also for changes to um, law, the ways in which um, antitrust uh, is treated. So that's, that's an area where people like Elizabeth Warren have got very, you know, been very articulate about, and there's, there are broader movements to change that. We will see what happens. Mm -hmm. Europe's done some on that. But now we're in the situation where maybe people were talking about why are we allowing these a few massive corporations to have this extraordinary political as well as economic power. Um, but yeah, my worry is that at the moment we're, they're the only game in town. What does that mean down the road? If we live in a world in which all, I live in a wonderful neighborhood in Glebe in Ottawa, you know, my neighborhood toy store, Mrs. Tiggy Winkles, a few weeks ago, before all this actually happened, but because they, and they've been around for like 43 years or something, and they slowly got smaller and smaller, they could not compete with the big online retailers, you know, mm -hmm. but that's a, you know, the, the, those kinds of stores are at the heart of, of, of neighborhoods. The darker side could well be, and we could see it intensifying existing patterns of inequality and structural inequality, or we could see mm -hmm. people sort of using this as a moment to really reach as they did after the Great Depression. And I think that is a very open question. And yeah. that's a political question. It's not just an economic question. It's about political will. Um, yeah, and, and of course, and, we have some last, very... Go, go ahead, Randall. Yeah, sorry, the la and the last 10, 10, 10 years uh, is not a... It's not a happy harbinger of, of what's no. going to happen because Precisely. I mean, what are the, one of the interesting yeah. things about uh, the post 2009 uh, landscape uh, was, is in fact uh, uh, bigger corporations okay? and bigger, and I, you know, we talked about back in the day, we talked about too big to fail. Uh, well, banks are now bigger uh, mm -hmm. than they were back then. They're mm -hmm. more concentrated. Uh, and uh, this, you know, the, the looking forward to how the economy gets re started and to a certain extent kind of reconfigured um, really gives uh, tilt. The, the playing field is enormously tilted to larger organizations. Um, and that's amplified even more in the one sector that is the, um, in a way, unambiguous uh, beneficiary of this, which is the, the high tech sector with platforms that connect uh, buyers and sellers and people, uh, you know, remotely and, and quickly and efficiently and all that kind of stuff. And so, you know, the Amazons of the world are going to get bigger uh, and the platforms are, are those kinds of platforms, are, you know, are going to become a more ubiquitous part of our daily life, partly because I think we're going to it's going to take such a long time for us to get comfortable going in, you know, crowding into the, the small shops, uh, you know, and, and doing that kind of stuff that, you know, we're going to hand those uh, institutions, the, those organizations, uh, you know, uh, a real, uh, a real running room, real running room. Again, you know, I think it's not a foregone conclusion. I think politics can make a difference on these things. And I think you can see different policymakers making, choosing yeah, different yeah, options, but it, yeah. it requires active, pushback, I think, yeah, and yeah. active mm -hmm. regulation and active encouragement and support for some nourishing small in, small businesses. I think anything yeah. else is just not going to cut yeah, it. And, and, and it's, that, you know, the, the pattern has been just largely, you know, laissez-faire with maybe a little bit of, you know, bailouts for what we're seeing in the US, we're probably seeing Canada bailouts for, for large, no, bailout for oil, like, absolutely, that's where our future lies now, right? Bailout for the airline industry, bailout for, you know, I mean, you could see it's very politically, it's very easy to do that, right? Um, in terms of the wider politic, you know, the implications, it's clearly 
doubling down on a set of, you know, why don't we bail out the cruise line industry while we're at it? You know, like anyway, like you just think about, but it's very hard to take a step back as, as Randall was saying, it's some of the shifts, some of the, the wider implications make this hard. But I do think, I mean, we're going to have to start changing. People have talked about like, but even production can't happen if people can't work side by side. So you need to actually in, mm-hmm. develop the infrastructure that allows people, if it means masks and better quality masks, and if it means, that's what it, that's what it takes. I think the answer cannot be all online. And any of us who've been trying to teach classes online right now know that or have our kids, my kids are six, right? You can see I've got pictures from them back there because it's my office, right? I'm, my office is also where I teach my kids reading at the moment because I'm doing both at once. Um, we're trying to organize playdates online. They, they they are not the same thing. So yeah. you know. <laughs> yeah. this is, um, I mean, I think re- one of the really interesting uh, aspects of uh, of what we're living through is that the impact of all of these uh, responses to to the pandemic have had the biggest single and most monumental um, uh, effects on urban life, on highly uh, urbanized life in the biggest cities in the world, but certainly in Canada. Um, and, and, uh, and, you know, how we, how, and, and that comes at a time when we're trying to rethink the nature of urban life anyway. And so how we kind of get that, how, what kind of resources we devote to thinking about, uh, you know, what's the balance between density and between having space. I mean, this is, uh, is, I think, uh, this is, we haven't even begun to, 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 to articulate that yet, but that's going to have a huge uh, impact on on uh, on the uh, the way that we live uh, coming out of this uh, pandemic. Okay, so well, we've, we've sort of uh, um, both talked a little bit about the, the the global and the very local at the moment. So let, let's let's focus on Canada itself. Then, what, what are these particular issues facing Canada? What's what's distinctive about the can- Canadian experience? And and in terms of the government's response, how how would you rate that? And how does it compare to the responses of other governments? I mean, certainly our central bank has been more cautious, but it has been moving it, rolling out um, more, you know, exceptional policies. Uh, I mean, I'm again, I'm not an expert on government policy. My sense, though, I I was very pleased to see what initially seemed to be more of a hodgepodge. I wasn't sure about the sort of patchwork of, of, of responses, but then I certainly was encouraged to see the move towards um, providing wage guarantees across the board. Um, which I think, you know, that's, and that's what Nordic countries and European countries have done. And I think that those are the kinds of policies that say what we need to do is not just like have everyone lose their jobs and go on EI and then have to start all over again, finding jobs. But if to the extent possible, we kind of freeze things in place, provide the support for people and for businesses so that they actually come out of this together whole at the other end. And then we move on from there. Um, minimizing that kind of damage. And I think uh, certainly I think that that response to me seemed to be a very healthy one. I will say for my own, you know, and there's also just been, I mean, this is not, this is again, back to the local. I mean, we can maybe talk about this and where I found the sort of local level, like my neighborhood has a wonderful bookstore, Octopus Books. Um, it's one of the last yeah. independent bookstores in the city and it sent out an, an SOS and the response was overwhelming. People just went and sent in, you know, book orders. And they're going to make it through the crisis, it seems, at least for now. My gym has gone to like online and she was trying to figure out what we could do. You know, um, she's a local, she's an entrepreneur, she has staff. And again, we just figured something out where we could, those of us who could continue supporting her could, those who didn't, you know, actually get free support, you know, um, and she's not laying anyone off. So, it, and then um, this is more the local, the local, the local on its own is not enough, obviously, but it's part of it. And that I find encouraging. And then again, this kind of attempt where possible to, to, to keep businesses intact 
uh, even if scaled down. I mean, it's very difficult to do, but. Yeah, yeah, there, there's, uh, I think there's, um, there's an enormous reservoir of, of, re- of a recognition as to how important the kinds of things that Jackie is just talking about are for, you know, how the local, how a local, a locality goes from Tuesday to Wednesday. Yeah. Uh, my daughter might work for, uh, has a connection to Octopussy because she, uh, works for uh, a bookseller, uh, a book marketer that markets international, you know, titles to Canadian uh, uh, bookstores. Uh, she, however, has been laid off. Uh, and so, you know, the, so when you, you when you move from the local to the national, uh, I mean, there's a couple of things that are really, I think, helpful to keep in mind about the scale of the challenge. Uh, one is that we live in a federal uh, a federal polity. OK, which means that uh, it means that in addition to the federal government, you've got, you know, uh, uh, 10, 13, you know, kind of uh, uh, non-federal uh, jurisdictions. And there there's a real unlike in the United States, there is a real division of power here. Uh, and that helps to account for why there are certain gaps in what we know and don't know about this, uh, about the spread of the pandemic. But um, the other really uh, important thing to think about here, uh, it is, that uh, you know, in Canada, uh, approximately a little over one third of our actual of our standard of living uh, derives from selling things to the rest of the world, um, and that has become much more difficult. And you know, as as difficult as it might be to uh, recognize, you know, the single biggest chunk of that one third of our standard of living that we earn by uh, you know transacting with the rest of the world is energy. And so, you know, to the point that that uh, Jackie made about about uh, uh, the, the the huge pressure to do something about that. Uh, I mean, that's that's overwhelming. And so, you know, neither of us are going to be surprised that something comes that way. Uh, you know, when when uh, you know the when when Alberta Albertan companies are getting four dollars for a barrel of their oil, I mean, it's just like you go, wow. I mean, how, what do you do about that? So another huge um, huge chunk of our economy that is you know uh, has been totally obliterated um, is tourism. I mean, you know, we, I, I, I come from the Yukon Territory, the Yukon Territory, one third of its economic activities kind of tourism, uh, and that's all entirely outside of Canada. That has just been totally uh, erased for 2020, uh, you know, and that is replicated. So, and then, and then I was mentioning earlier about, you know, the part of our, of Canada's economy that is constituted by us going out and doing things, whether it's getting a restaurant or a drink or whatever. Uh, you know, I mean, I that that's the, the the entertainment and leisure industry is. You know, um, what are they going to do about that now? Uh, uh, all three of those, energy, tourism, and and kind of leisure, uh, it really uh, uh, depend hugely on when the pandemic itself is brought under control. So, if it's in two months, that presents one scenario. If it's in six months, that's a different scenario. And then you have the psychological aspect about how you go for it. So, so uh, I, I think uh, I think we should not underestimate the scale of the challenge. Um, having said that, I totally uh, agree that with, with Jackie that the trying to maintain intact the collective organizational basis of how we do that is hugely important. Now, so they've they the, the federal government. 
uh, which I don't think was their initial, I don't think it was their initial, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, but they, so they looked around the world and yeah. said, okay, so yeah. 10% People is not People are borrowing from each other's best practices. It's actually yeah, nice yeah. to see that. Yeah. So, so the global connectivity on that score is actually yeah. working quite well. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But, but, uh, but so the, the challenge will be how to, uh, how to ensure that, that that gets rolled out. Uh, and then how how it is kind of maintained or or, or modified as we go through. Uh, I, I mean, I think as I look forward, um, I you know I'm I'm on sabbatical currently. I'm going to back to teaching in September. I have big questions about whether the what degree of normalcy will be yeah. involved in reintegrating into my normal work structure. Yeah. Um, do we have so- Do we still have classrooms packed full of 250 students? Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and that's just like the canary in the coal mine. I mean, you know, are, are, are Jackie's children going to be going back to school? Uh, I hope so. <laughs> uh, most people think so, but, but will the rest of the, you know, so I think, I think, um, Everybody's you know, while, scratched off grade one, you know. Oh my God. Yeah, I know. I know. But, uh, but I, I think that, uh, you know, I'm hoping. I'm hoping that there's not every single civil servant is, you know, hunkered down trying to figure out how to make sure that may, uh, you know, gets through, but some of them, a small number of them are also thinking mm-hmm. about, about September, because uh, I think sure that, you know, that the enrolling that is really going to be absolutely. Yes. Well, and that's where one of my senses, one of the big pieces of the puzzle that we, I mean, the government has tried to come up, you know, they now have, for example, uh, sorry, one of the big pieces of the puzzle is, is supporting the fact of uh, parents, right, who are working and who are now caring for their children full time. Mm-hmm. Um, and we live in an economy, I, you know, I, I, I'm not, I don't write a lot explicitly all on feminist folk economy, but I'm very aware when I teach, we always talk about social reproduction and all of the massive amount of unpaid caring labor that is in the world and how the vast majority of it is done by women in Canada, I think, or at least in, in Western countries, it's like women traditionally do 50% more of, of that kind of labor than men do if they're both working. Um, so, but now suddenly, instead of just having that there when parents are old or when, you know, the after school care or whatever, you've got it like 24 seven. This is a huge challenge. Like, so the government did come up, they've got a kind of EI type, like emergency benefit for people who have to stay home and can't work. Mm-hmm. But then there's all the rest of us in this kind of in between, you know, vaguely flexible space where we're just being asked to keep coping somehow. Mm-hmm. And I, again, I think we can do that for a while, but at a certain point, that is going to stop being feasible. Um, and, and I don't think most employers have got to the point where they're, I mean, that's so out of our, we are so good at not thinking about that work and that, that massive amount of labor. We just do not, you know, we don't have to think about it for the most part. Me being like, obviously I do because I'm a mother, but you know, the, 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 the rest, you know, the, the infrastructure and business and, and the public sector and so on has just not had to think about that. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's going to be, that's a place also, one of my silver linings is maybe this actually forces us to recognize that care. The people who are, who've been now forced to homeschool, you see on Twitter, people going, okay, now teachers need to be paid like a million dollars a year because yeah, yeah. this yeah, is yeah. actually yeah. really hard. I would On the silver lining front, um, I think given the, uh, the, um, the way in which we're treating, uh, uh, you know, um, distance and isolation, uh, I think there's going to be a rethink about about uh, sick care, mm-hmm. uh, mandatory sick care, you know, that, that governments are going to yeah. impose on companies that, you yeah. know, you have to have better yeah. sick care so that uh, when someone has a cough in yeah. October, they, they actually, actually stay home. 
Yeah. 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 So, so, you know, that's a, so, so, you know, we might think about going forward once we kind of begin to uh, uh, reenter a, a more normal pattern of behavior um, that the, the entire range of, of, of benefits that mm-hmm. become part of the legislative framework. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think uh, I, I, I would hope that that's going to be significantly improved to take account of the fact that things are easily spread. I'm going to ask you about the financial system in a second, but um, I just want just wanted to ask um, something that follows on from that. Um, so, so what it seems to be is that you're suggesting that the, the, the government is doing its best to sort of hold steady until the end of this immediate crisis. And, and, the, and if we're going to go on to best cases and worst cases in a moment, that's great. But is it, uh, and so there may be some rethinking of some of these fundamentals uh, of, of how we run our political economy. But it seems to me that it, there's the, because everything at the moment, all this, this extra money that they're pumping in to try and try and keep everything steady is all being paid through debt. Are, are we going to just have, first of all, the pandemic crisis and then an austerity, whether that it depends on your political perspective, whether austerity is a crisis or not, but a, a, a long shadow of austerity that follows this to pay everything back. Well, if we do that, that would be a very, very big mistake. So if you look back at, I think The Economist actually has this great piece looking at, um, right now, basically, debt costs almost nothing. Bond markets have lost all their power. So I actually got interested in political economy because Canada had a debt crisis in the mid-90s, and I was a parliamentary intern sitting in parliament watching the liberal government, like the Chrétien liberals, come in and basically impose mass austerity across the country. And I could not figure that out. Like, that was this massive... For me, it was, a, it, was, it was a tragedy, right? That they would go in there and dismantle the education system, the health system, and so on in the way that they, they but they felt they had to in the 90s because the bond markets were saying, we don't trust your debt. We don't trust you're going to pay it back. Um, my current research is one of the things I want to get to is figure out if they were actually misleading themselves and thinking that they had so little wiggle room. I'm not entirely convinced that many of those crises were in fact, as we all had bought into, they, everyone had drunk the Kool-Aid, you know, and they all believed that globalization meant, you know, that all these guys had enormous power. Um, it's not always necessary. Like, you don't know. If you, if you accept that, that they do, then you can never test out the counterfactual what would have happened if you just, you know, held, t- t- held tight. But in those days, it, it, it's very true. Bond markets could raise, you know, they could say, we will only buy your debt at, you know, 12%, 15%, 20%, whatever. And then suddenly your debt payments go up and they exercise enormous power over governments. But today, like, they have zero power. You know, they basically, they, there's, there's, you know, the central banks have decided they're going to print as much as they want. Governments are going to spend it. The bond markets have lost their capacity. The, 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 the debt is so cheap. It doesn't really matter. And uh, the economists looked at the fact this was the case also actually after um, the, second, was it the Second World War, looking at there's a massive rundown in sense of that debt because interest rates actually until the 1970s, real interest rates were actually negative. And so Government started off with very high debt to GDP levels. And the trick is, right, it's not about how much debt you have. It's debt to GDP. So if, you're de- if your austerity means that you go into prolonged recession or very low growth, you actually don't get, end up better off, right? Because you're actually, you may, you, know, you may be trying to pay off your debt, but your debt, you're ultimately your, your yeah. economic growth is not enough to catch up. Yeah. And that's what happened in Greece. It happened to some extent in the UK. A number of countries who pursued austerity after the last crisis ended up actually worse off than before. Um, so there is no necessary reason that that is actually a good answer. It's based on faulty economics. Now, where in fact, so, so the question then, that doesn't mean you can just spend endlessly and not care, right? But if we're in an incredibly low inflation world, 
Um, the key right now is regaining confidence, regaining energy and investment and, and those kinds of flows that, um, that Randall was talking about. Uh, and so this conversation about how it gets paid off, I mean, that is a potential conversation, but we're such a long ways away from that now. And I think the answer is to try to get the growth ultimately um, and, 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 and move ahead in that sense. So I think that's just a, this, this whole austerity as a solution is a complete red herring. And in fact, a deeply dangerous. Well, it's an ideological okay. one. Uh, yeah, and, it is ideological. And, uh, that's and, exactly uh, you what know, it is. Hopefully uh, your research and others uh, uh, actually exposes that for, for what it is. Yeah. Um, you know, and in a way, what it what it really means is that is that when because in you know the, the other thing that this that this that this crisis has 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 uh, revealed, which is um, uh, it certainly reinforces those of us who looked at two thousand nine, is is that you know when when the established pattern of behavior gets disrupted for whatever reason, uh, no one looks to Amazon, you know, or Tesla or Elon Musk to figure out how to get us out of this, they look to their governments, okay, yeah. and they expect their government to do X, Y, and Z things. So, uh, so the question then isn't really about about debt in isolation, as Jackie's pointed out. It's, it's you know, is is debt the the best vehicle to do it? And and I think I think in this case, it is. You know, uh, there is not an issue around uh, creating resources to address the problems that we're facing. This is uh, for for many of the reasons, some others that that Jackie has has mentioned. Uh, this is not a constraint. Uh, the real question is, what do you do with the resources? And so, and, and this is the, the funny kind of um, uh, conundrum about the question about restarting growth, because the easiest way to restart growth is to put money back in the things that used to lead that growth. Most importantly in Canada, the energy industry in all of its manifestations from natural gas. Green to, to the, yeah. 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 And so, and, and clearly you can't abandon that because there's a huge uh, constituent community built around that, not only in Alberta, um, but you know, some of that money and indeed a big chunk of that, of that, of that, the money that's going to flow into the economy from the government really should be directed to new areas of growth. Uh, and ideally in a best possible world to those areas of, of, of growth that don't actually uh, exist in kind of a contradiction to the other big uh, uh, simmering crisis that Jack identified earlier, which is the climate to whatever extent you, know, you there's a huge range of versions about how big of it is, but no one says it's not an it. So, um, and so the question is, you know, shouldn't some of that money be directed there? And how do you do that? And I think that's going to be very, very important. It, it, you know, it's not just a matter of putting money into circulation, but it's a matter of putting money into circulation where the biggest payoff to the kind of growth that we want is uh, going to come from. And that is uh, to be much more sustainable and ecologically oriented. I also have to point out, though, um, that, the, that the point that Jackie was making um, about, uh, you know, debt is not an issue is actually, in a way, only a reality for a select group. It is correct to say that for Canada, for most of the G7 countries. Uh, but once you go beyond the G7 countries, it's a little bit more uneven. And so, you know, if you're Botswana and you are, you, or, you know, or even countries where there are not functioning states like Syria or whatever, you know, you can't do this, right? So, so it is a, it, you know, it does, it's important for us to recognize that, that we are actually in a very privileged position in Canada, because uh, uh, we have the resources, the capacities, if we get it right, to, to come out of this uh, stronger and, and, you know, with a better, more sustainable economy. Um, but 
the, the, the flip side of that is that, you know, it's pointless to have a prosperous G7 in a, in a, in a, in a, in a, in a world that is riddled with, you know, pandemics and with poverty and with inequality. And so the global mm-hmm. connections that are, you know, are, that, that are part of, of our process, um, I think uh, really have taken a hit in this. I mean, you know, Denmark has closed itself off from the rest of the world, from, from the rest of Europe. Denmark is part of the Schengen zone. Last time I checked, uh, the same, you know, Hungary is doing that. And so the question about, about how to, to, you know, for Canada, this is a Canada, about how to, to get the restart right and also make a contribution to having the world get restarted, yeah. I think uh, is something that we haven't spent a lot of time figuring out yet because we're so busy looking at our own. And that's if there's an interesting parallel with the climate crisis, right? That init- and some of the initial responses were, oh, I can't want it under the Harper government. The response was, well, it's not our problem. It's, you know, China needs to get it right or we don't want to have to provide because it, it was developing countries who said, well, you guys got developed by massively using fossil fuels. And so, and now you're telling us we can't have that same, you know, in, we can't use that same resource in a sense, right? Um, and the, so the, the, the solution had to be global, to be fair. And it took a long time for people to recognize that. We still haven't gone far enough down that, um, down that path recognizing it, but there's been some recognition that yes, that there's there. So I think this is a similar thing where ultimately all of us managing and avoiding future pandemics means all of us also having the capacity and the resources to do that. But that's, inc- you know, our capacity to do that, the state capacity, we've talked about the return of the state, the state is very present here, but different, the state is it, you know, as I, we end up talking in my class often, we can talk about the state in the economy, but which state, right? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. if you're in the, I was, I did my PhD in the US, right? Massively exceptional, right? They're, they're, they, they talk about things as if what goes on there is what happens in the world, but they are, they are exceptional in that sense, right? Canada, we're you know, not quite the US, but we are still very privileged, right? And so we have state capacity, so many others don't. And so that also has to be part of the, the conversation, I would agree. Yeah, and I don't, I mean, I don't, I don't hear this uh, when I look at the coverage of the US uh, efforts. Um, but, you know, I mean, over the last 10 years, um, you know, the support for welfare provision in the United States has been cut in half. Uh, you know, it's gone from, you know, being, uh, as part of my research, I know this number, you know, being about four and a half percent of their GDP was spent on, on welfare provision. And today it's two and a quarter. Uh, and, you know, part of that is that it did ramp up after 2008 for a couple of years, but, you know, it's been steadily dwindling. So, you know, there is an argument to be made that, uh, one of the, one of the most important things that we in Canada can do is to encourage our American, you know, kind of colleagues to fight for a bigger welfare state because that cushions their marginal and vulnerable populations, which mm-hmm. means that there will be more support for a, a well functioning and globally connected kind of uh, you know, environment, uh, because whatever we may think about what's going on in the United States right now, it is still probably the single biggest support for a properly functioning global economy society uh, that we have. And when it's kind of going like this, you know, Canada can't pick up the pieces entirely. Uh, it's just me, but I I don't know if we want China to pick up the pieces either. You know, I mean, we, you know, China is going to be part of the solution. Uh, but, you know, given given um, the uh, political regime in China, uh, I don't know, you know, quite how it uh, it can be globalized in the way that some of us would like the best parts of the United States global. Uh, That's a great point. So you're both uh, you're both experts on the on the financial system. So should we turn our attention to that? How? What what's going on there? <laughs> um, I mean, if you if you think about about the banking sector, which is probably the the most important part of the finance that most of us have contact with, 
Uh, I mean, this is not, I, I'm not worried about this in Canada, um, you know, both because, you know, the government, which has ample resources, is totally behind the financial system, uh, but also because, uh, you know, one, um, what many people consider to be a positive aspect of the last 10 years has been that, you know, banks, almost all banks have been forced to to have bigger bigger buffers, bigger kind of, you know, uh, mm-hmm. a contingency uh, uh, cushions of capital so that they're actually, you know, pretty, pretty stable for the most part institutions, certainly in Canada and in, in many other parts of, uh, uh, of the OECD. But, you know, so, so I think banks, we don't have to worry that the banking system is going to unravel in the way that we were worried about that in 2008. Okay. Uh, okay. Um, the bigger question I think about the financial system is how, how is, you know, how is, and I'll go back to the point I raised, raised at the beginning of, the, of this podcast, how will the money that is being put into the financial system uh, through quantitative easing and, and the lowering of interest rates, which has been quite spectacular, how is that money going to flow through to the people who can not only use it to pay rent, but use it to, you know, to, uh, to revive their business or even to invest in new business? That's the conundrum. Um, and the, the, the thing I think I would point out about that is that you know the financial system is only as healthy as is that community that uses the money and so that's to me where we need to make that connection between between providing uh, uh somehow getting uh you know the money to circulate throughout the economy throughout all the whole full range of economic actors and and get it to those people who will then use it and uh, you know the the um unfortunate aspect about but putting the problem like that is that generally speaking, it is going to be firms, whether they're small firms or big firms, that do that. And so really you're talking about putting in place the incentives and the resources to get those firms to invest. But they and don't that, do that. Think, they didn't do that last time around, right? They took, I mean, all, most of, they took most of the money in the U.S. and they bought up their own stock. Yes, And now they're correct. asking yeah, for more yeah, money yeah. again. Like that, yeah, there's yeah. no, there, we've tried that and it doesn't work. Well, and not only that, but where it does work, you get bigger corporations and less competition. So, yeah. you know, so, but, but it's, but I don't, I don't, I don't think we can, uh, you know, it, it's important to recognize the pickle that that is, right? The people who will use the money to do what will have the biggest economic impact uh, are usually not, uh, it, it's no, it's no, not good to give me the money or maybe even Jackie that you probably make a better decision because I'm near retirement. Uh, you know, it, you needed to put it into, into, you know, uh, those organizations that are getting out there and building things and providing services so that, you know, they can be used. And that's a, that's a real problem. And I, I don't, I know myself don't see how to kind of get around that. Have you, so that, what do you think of helicopter money? Because I mean, that's where some of the, the argument has been that you need bailouts for people, not for banks, right? You need quantitative yeah. easing for people. You need to do a bottom up, yeah. kind of inductive yeah. well, rather than deductive, get the money out there, drive demand. Again, the problem, there is still the problem of like production supply and so on, but. Yeah. Yeah. yeah well, I mean, you know, we don't, we don't, we, in the end, it's hard to, to say which is better or worse. Uh, that, well, what we can say is that that seems to be what the American response is going to be, that it's going to put, I saw the figure I saw was twelve hundred dollars. You know, yeah. in you know, so and that is a version of helicopter money. Uh, Would you know, mind just you know, explaining I mean, what uh, helicopter? Milton Friedman, okay. I can't remember, was it sixty-seven or something? Came up with the phrase actually, and he just he used it in this kind of thought experiment. What would happen if you just you know uh, increase the supply of money 
once off across the board. He's a monetarist, so he was interested in the supply of money. Um, this is not just like a government borrowing and putting the money out there. This is the central bank just saying there is now more money in the system, which is, right. I mean, this is what banks do every time you go and take a, you know, a loan from them. They just, they, they invent money, right? So this is the idea that you just do this across the board um, and you see what happens. And it was the metaphor of a helicopter going and dropping money, right? Like just sort of thinking right. about this is what it would be like. Instead of what's been happening is that the central banks have been creating money and they have been buying up government bonds, and increasingly, certainly in Europe and other parts, they've also been buying up private sector bonds, right? Which is where I was raising some of the concerns about uh, climate implications, right? In terms of where you pick, where, where you end up put, putting that money. Um, so they, that, that, that's one way of doing it, right? You increase money and you support the, the, and, the and then the idea is that that's supposed to get down into, into people. And, and the idea was it was supposed to get firm, like banks and firms and like investors to, to invest in riskier stuff. Right. And not always right. go for the safer stuff. It was supposed to get um, interest rates down over the longer term as well to, to fuel investment, you know, investment and spending in that case. And it was supposed to just get firms spending right and investing and right. doing stuff with the money, um, which, again, turned out not to work nearly as well as people had had hoped it was. So this was this idea is to say, can we do the same, use that same capacity? And in a sense, it's like monetizing the money. It's it basically saying instead of government debt going up, the central bank basically just creates that that money. But instead of get, targeting it to um, firms, governments, and so on, you target it to regular folks and you see what that does. And it's, it is being tried now. Uh, but I do mm -hmm. think we need to think outside of the box right now. I mean, the other area which, uh, you know, is starting to be talked about again is universal basic income, right? And that's about right, saying <laughs> this crisis has revealed the massive social problems when we, we start producing, uh, the, the other, one of the other things I talk about with my students, right, is the gig economy because they all live it, right? So how many, you know, how many of them are in con are, are ex expect to get secure jobs? Almost none these days. And this is in Ottawa, right? It's a government town. My students 10 years ago, 15 years ago, expected to get regular full-time jobs. These guys don't anymore, right? Contract to contract, that's sort of the, mm -hmm. the, the, the general expectation. Um, but what does that do to your, to, to in this kind of context where you don't have sick leave, you don't have the infrastructure, you don't have the welfare, you can't, people can't take sick days, right? Um, you start realizing there are actually un, uncounted social costs. Um, I'm not saying, I'm not necessarily a big advocate of universal basic income because it's one of those things where the devil is 100% in the details. There's a reason why you have conservatives supporting it as well as very radical, you know, you've got people on the right and on the left supporting it. And it's because they're talking about something very different. Some people are talking about it replacing all the programs. I mean, Milton Friedman basically supported this. He said, what you want is a negative income tax. Um, again, he's a big neoliberal, again, replace all these individual welfare programs and so on, and just, you know, make it simple across the board. Um, I think there is a way of, of bringing that in maybe as, you know, finding a, a healthy version of this that, that, that is reasonable. But I think it's, an, again, it's an interesting question. It's like, do, what do we need to do to, to fill this gap? We used to have quite generous welfare. We used to have quite generous EI back in the days when it was UI, you know, I know they rebranded it and they cut it dramatically. Right. We've all, a lot of that is gone in the system. We don't have those kinds of, I mean, the Nordic countries do, they get 90% salary after six months. Right. But we have really got rid of that. So what these kinds of moments of crisis, I think, make us ask, what, where are these gaps? Why are we suddenly having to fill them with little plugs here and there? Why isn't there something more um, systematic? Um, mm -hmm. Recognizing, again, this is about recognizing the fact that we're, we are all in this together. And if we, groups in the society are really vulnerable and are suffering, 
we all suffer. And that's what people were learned after the Great Depression, right? That's what they figured out. People didn't, weren't willingly in a bread line. You know, they weren't, it wasn't because they were lazy and they couldn't get off their butts, right? They were there because the society had fallen apart and failed them. And so society had to support that. And we lost that. And we didn't lose that. Again, it's ideology. It's like, this is what people like Thatcher and others set out to, to really undermine that social solidarity um, mm -hmm. and create this incredibly individualist society. There, are, there have been some positives out of it, but I think overall, we are now paying the price. And yeah, no, I mean, you, could, you could see it going either way. You could see it uh, moving much more towards yeah. uh, uh, a, basic, a universal basic income uh, as a way of, in fact, shrinking the state. Uh, as a way of getting the state out of the uh, all those little things that it mm -hmm. that it that it uses in a way mm -hmm. that guides you know the private sector and guides the private economy and guides capitalism more generally, uh, or you could see uh, it, uh, you know the 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 recognition that we you know if we want to get to this point we need to actually put in place you know we need to manage demand a little bit different we need to you know create an infrastructure that gets us to there whether that is the green economy or whatever 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 uh so yeah i could see it i could, so the, the point that i that i that i think is to me you know that i take from that is that that is actually a political decision that is a yes. collective political yeah. decision that will come about because of the degree of the mobilization of people who are have been affected in different ways by by what we've been living through and so mm -hmm. uh, I, I think you know when we when we think about uh, the impact of this pandemic on different different parts of of, 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 of Canadian society you know the 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 group that is in some respects the least politically mobilized uh, because they are the most disadvantaged or the most marginalized, uh, or the furthest away, uh, which is, you know, a chunk of the indigenous population, et cetera, uh, living in northern Canada and what have you. I mean, it, you know, these people are the most impacted. They would be, in a way, the most uh, benefited the most if we move towards some form of system which, you know, enable them to participate in, in all of the normal activities that we take for granted, uh, but which they can't because every time they turn around, you know, they have to apply for this little bit or that. So it's really a political decision. And, and uh, you know, it'll be, this will be one of the really intriguing longer term uh, kind of effects uh, of the pandemic, uh, you know, going forward, uh, you know, a half a decade and a decade to see how the forms of political mobilization kind of take their cue from what has gone on. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, and that's, that's something I'm certainly going to be watching for. In terms of a, this sort of a theoretical view of the state then, would we say that it's back? As it, is it, you know, we've spent all this time, the new, we mentioned Milton Friedman and Thatcher and so on, all this decades of trying to get rid of the state. Is it back now? I mean, one point I think we have to make is the state never went away. Like Thatcher and Reagan tried to reduce it and they failed. So they never succeeded in that. What they did do was dramatically reduce the portion of the state that supports people in need, right? So they, re they shifted resources. So Reagan, for example, you know, massively increased military spending, um, but, you know, wasn't also able to reduce entitlements. And like, politically, again, wasn't able to make a lot of those changes. Thatcher was able to make some. But again, if you look at it, the size of the state continued to grow. So that's a really interesting kind of, I think that's something we need to recognize that that we've never really moved away from a strong state, but the state is, has been doing different things and it has really stepped away from, from, some, from certain forms of active support that were there in the past that we really might want to be rethinking. So to me, that where the state goes in the future, there's two possible, there's the good and the bad, right? The good is like, 
you know, what do we, you know, in so far as we recognize its necessity and in a way that everyone can see now, you know, why there needs to be a state that we trust, right, with reasonable people in there, that they need to have capacity to respond to crises that, that the private sector or individuals on their own can never adequately respond to. Um, and that, I think, again, as we've been talking about, there's some possibilities of that moving forward in a positive way in terms of rethinking. I think this is at a, at a kind of cultural level. Re, as, and as we're seeing in the everyday actions of some of our, you know, in our communities, right, rediscovering a sense of community and a sense of social, social solidarity. Um, I think if we can get that out of this, if that is very, a very, very positive. The dark side, though, is, of course, you know, we are in a state of exception right now. We are, you know, there are states of emergency all, you know, at, in, at the provincial level many different cities in many different governments, right? And that's necessary at the moment. But states of emergency are also moments of exceptional and often unchecked and unaccountable state power. And that these are worrying, these are worrying times. Um, the state can do very, a great deal of good. The state can also do a great deal of bad. Uh, I always, one of the things, jokes I have with my colleagues who work on security studies is that those of us sort of progressive people in political economy are often saying we need more state. And those in critical security studies are saying, we need less state. And I always think, like, why is that? Like, this is a really interesting dilemma. And it's partly because we're looking at the different aspects of what the state does. This is a crisis that brings them both together, right? That we're seeing the state as the support for the economy and helping people in need. But we're also seeing police, army, and increasingly, right, we're also seeing the possibility of shift towards a kind of individualized technocratic surveillance. That's how South Korea has moved back to something that's a bit more normal. This is what we saw after 9-11 too, right? We saw what was initially a kind of warlike response get diffused into increased surveillance of everyday life. So that worries me yeah. a lot, yeah. you know, and I think that's something that, you know, it may be necessary under some circumstances, but what do we give up in the longer term through that? And I think that's where we're going to have to be very careful about um, what, yeah, not just think, how much just, state, but what kind of state. Yeah, yeah, uh, totally, totally. Uh, and uh, and that, that last point you're making about surveillance and uh, that, and that that's the application of technology that that's not going away and that is you know the question about uh, is about how to how to harness it and how to how to ensure that it uh, that aligns with with uh, the uh, set of values and rights and responsibilities that you know Canada has has tried tried <laughs> tried to to uh, to evolve over the the past century um, that's why for example I think uh, Canada's response has not been as efficient as uh, the response of China uh, or South Korea, for that matter, or Taiwan, you know, because they have uh, a much um, uh, greater surveillance capacity that that have, for a variety of reasons has, has unfolded. Yeah. Um, no, I, I think uh, the, the, the I totally agree with, with uh, how Jackie has presented that. And I mean, and, and I think uh, what we really want to ensure about about um, how the state or government evolves over the next uh, decade in response to this is that, you know, in addition to, uh, I, I think, strengthening its capacities and instruments to, to do things in society, whether that's increasing, uh, you know, our healthcare, making it better and more efficient, all that kind of stuff, that we also pay attention to the democratic aspect of that, the, the oversight aspect of that, the accountability aspect of that. Um, and that, to me, is linked entirely and totally um, to, uh, to, you know, the extent of our, of our mobilization, you know, it's, cause it's, you know, it really, in the end, it's, it's up to us in some ways to, to, to discipline, uh, governmental bureaucracies to a certain extent. Um, the courts also play a role, 
but uh, you know, uh, uh, but uh, I think that's going to be that's going to be a critical aspect. And, and you know, uh, the state of exception that Jackie is talking about—that's uh, pretty powerful. You know, it's it's very powerful. Uh, and and in Canada, for whatever reason, uh, we are a little bit more differential. You know, we're a bit, a little bit more on the British side of things than on the American side of things. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, we don't quite have as many guns floating around here as they do there. And, mm-hmm. and I don't think the shops that sold guns, which were closed, uh, cause they weren't essential. Uh, I mean, the, the, you know, it's shocking to me when this began in the United States to see the lineups outside of it. <laughs> it was like, whoa. Um, I would want to be living in North Dakota at this particular, uh, juncture in time, I think. Um, but you know, I, I think when I think about the longer term and the state, uh, and our governmental capacity, you know, it has been a secular trend, uh, with very few exceptions, uh, for the state to increase its capacities after every crisis because something is revealed that was a gap or an inadequacy. Mm-hmm. So we are on a trajectory of, of more and more, uh, state involvement in our economy and our lives more generally. Uh, and I think that's clear that that's not going to be turned around. Uh, and so I would again, you know, and that's it's interesting at the same time we have that has occurring. We're having the hollowing out of traditional political parties, you know, and, mm-hmm. and, you know, those of us in the economy don't often pay attention to that, but, but I think that those two things, which are going like this, yeah, that's kind of interesting to, to point out. Um, the, and the final point I think I would say though, is that, um, and I would just flip that around to say, you know, one of the the interesting, I think, looking forward aspects of the, of uh, of this crisis will be that debates over globalization, which uh, have for the most part been conducted on two parallel planes that don't meet. One is the ideological plane, uh, which uh, you know uh, Jackie has alluded to nicely with the Thatcher and Friedman, etc. Um, but you know, our debates over over whether we want more or less globalization has often been conducted through an ideological or an ideational frame, or it's been conducted through a kind of hard nosed, you know, we get more out of it than we put into it, you know, because growth has, you know, been, been greater and all this kind of stuff, which in both of those debates and sets of claims and frames of reference, uh, you know, have all kinds of, uh, of problems in terms of figuring out how to properly assess them. But we're adding to the kind of empirical part of that debate now um, a health component, like a materiality component that, that you know, global connectivity mm-hmm. means that pandemics spread faster, Fair. you know. And so I think looking forward, um, you know, debates over globalization are now not just going to be about debates over ideas or about the best means to generate the most economic growth, it's also going to have a health component and it's going to have a component about preparedness uh, and crisis catastrophe preparedness that I think both will incline um, our assessment of the costs and benefits of globalization towards, will, will enhance the cost component and diminish the benefit component. So um, that's another reason why I think that going forward, you know, we're going to live in a global political economy that is uh, more uh, influenced even more greatly than the past by the quirks of individual states and their leaders and their systems. Um, Mm -hmm. And we'll have less, uh, we'll be less connected uh, globally. So I think, you know, I think, 
as many people have been arguing, the, the apogee, the, the height of globalization, we reached sometime just before around 1995 or 2007. And, and it's been on a kind of a plateau over the last 10 years, not increasing. And I think going forward is actually going to, uh, going to diminish. So that's, uh, and, you know, and the, and the state will be a huge part of, of that uh, calculation. Um, and if I can just press you both on, a, on an answer to the best case and worst case scenarios for five, give me a snapshot, five years down the line. Does, what does that mean in practice? My biggest concern is uh, that the psychological damage of this, uh, of the response pandemic uh, will in fact have um, uh, much deeper implications in terms of how we uh, socialize and get together and therefore want to go out and, you know, do our part in the demand driven, uh, you know, consumer economy. Uh, I, that's my greatest fear that this, this will come back very, very slowly. Um, and it will have a kind of a permanent uh, effect on, on how we think about getting together. Um, the silver lining, the silver lining for me is, uh, is that, uh, you know, despite all of the, um, ways in which the new technology platforms have enabled the distortion of knowledge place. I think that when we're confronted with this kind of a situation, evidence-based thinking uh, is proven superior to wishful thinking and ideological thinking. And so I think the, you know, uh, to go back to a very famous quote, uh, from John Maynard Keynes, written in 1933, uh, in a well-quoted article called National Self-Sufficiency, you know, there are certain things which just circulate globally, and ideas and knowledge are among them. I think this, to me, the silver lining is that this pandemic, even in its, you know, it's only three months old now, this has really revealed that we benefit from the global circulation of knowledge and information. Uh, and so that's that's something I really hold on to. And I think that that has kind of really received even stronger support uh, than than uh, than uh, than previously. Um, and the fall off of that is that hopefully, you know, um, elite bashing, uh, sorry, expertise bashing, um, will uh, will take a little bit of a hit because uh, you know uh, the uh, uh, if we're gonna when we come out of this, it will be there will have been mistakes will have been made. But I think uh, following the the uh, following. The recommendations of, of scientific experts, uh, I think, will we'll, uh, we'll really have, uh, have mitigated the worst aspect. But I think, that, that, for me, that's a plus. I mean, I, I just want to speak just specifically to that point, because that's a point I made in the blog, one of the blogs I posted on, on SIPs, is that I agree entirely with the importance of the sort of discussions around knowledge. Um, but I also think what, what has struck me is it's not just, I think we've been talking about evidence policy making as if it's like you take the truth and you just, you know, mm. stick a policy on it. And I think what's so clear in this case that it's not like there is a truth and here it is and now we're going to act on it, right? It's a work in progress. And that's what the scientific method is. It's like trial and error and it's hypothesis and testing. And then it's, and in this case, it is also profoundly social, right? So, so as they, there was this piece, rather depressing piece, but still fascinating in the, in the Washington Post that talked about how the existing models, which suggested when the peak was going to happen and how many deaths, had not built into them the possibility that policymakers would treat those models as a hoax. And once policymakers treat the models as a hoax, people start behaving differently, right? They start recommending different kinds of measures. You get less social distancing. And then the model, of course, is not true because people are, are in fact, content, you know, that you get a lot more infection. 
Uh, and to me, because I study economic expertise, it's exactly the same, right? Like, and the problem with so much economic expertise and the way it's been treated until recently is as if it was something like you, there's a rule and you find it and you follow it. That's what central banking is supposed to be about. That's what fiscal rules are about, right? It's that we don't trust the politics and we don't trust people or the social. So we're going to pretend it doesn't exist and we're going to pretend that we can behave like a science. But it's a really radically inadequate understanding of how science actually works, which is in this complex social context. So in that sense, I think, you know, there's what I found so encouraging is this kind of both, you know, all this very careful studies and experiments and evaluating and testing and trying to understand the data, but, but always with this recognition of the complexity, the uncertainties, and the fact that it is an evolving and socially mm-hmm. driven process. So that would be, that would, I would just, you know, nuance yeah, slightly yeah. what you're saying no, in terms totally, of, I think yeah. I'm hoping that it's that kind of knowledge. I've been working interest, interested in, in sort of what I call cultures of expertise and ignorance, right? How do you deal with the fact that, that you are ignorant about a lot of things? Do you pretend mm-hmm. that you aren't? You just deny it? Or do you or figure you, out you ways of coping with it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, do you, do you build it in in ways that are actually healthy? Yeah. And yeah, so yeah. I think that's what we need. It's not that we need, we don't need post-truth, but we don't need to, we also, I don't want this kind of assumption that the truth is, is always easy to figure out, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's that, figure, yeah. it's, it's yeah. that, it's that yeah. middle space. Okay. Dark, the, I teach on the dark side, the dark side, you know, like I actually teach in my first year intro to politics course, we read The Handmaid's Tale and we read 1984. So that tells you a little bit about my capacity for imagining. It's not that I think that's where we're going, but I think these are important messages about how, I mean, and I could also just as easily be teaching about, you know, Stalinism, or I could be teaching about, um, you know, Nazism. You know, like, you, like we, are, we are capable of very, very dark things in our society. We are capable of, in, you know, states of emergency have produced, you know, the interning of of populations, they produce Guantanamo, which are, we're, we're, we're capable of, of very nasty things. And so I think we need to be aware of that, that mm-hmm. there's, there are people who are going to try to weaponize this situation, right? And you can see the enhancing of authoritarianism. Um, I, I worry about that in the American case. You see that in the extreme version in Brazil right now, but you can, you know, think about how that playing out also in the British context. Anyway, so I worry about that. Mm-hmm. I worry also that this, we haven't talked, we've talked a bit about inequality, but you know, what has been so starkly revealed is how different people's, you know, I, I am anxious, you know, but think about all the other people that, you know, we deal with who don't, you know, who, who don't have secure employment, who are living paycheck to paycheck. And then, you know, Randall talked about, you know, people, you know, indigenous populations in Canada, we can talk about people around the world, you know, living in, in conditions of extreme poverty, who don't have the kind of capacity in some cases, right, in some of these refugee camps to even wash their hands, right? So, Again, it seems to me this is a crisis that reveals that inequality, but we could easily double down on it. That's what we did after the 2008 global financial crisis, right? We just increased inequality, uh, in not everywhere, but in many contexts. And certainly the very, very wealthy got a whole lot wealthier. Yeah. Um, so that worries me as a potential um, direction. So this mm-hmm. kind of increased, almost shifting from just a stronger state, which I think is probably going to be okay, a little bit less globalization, again, probably okay. That, that's the, the positive version. The, the negative version is autarky and authoritarianism, right? And, mm-hmm. I, and mm-hmm. I, you know, obviously, I'm hoping that's not where we go, but mm-hmm. it's possible. Mm-hmm. The positive would be, yeah, as I've suggested, that this, the silver lining would be uh, increased sense of salt, social solidarity, um, and uh, a sort of shift in our away from the kind of selfishness that we've been cultivating. Um, and, and more generally, I would say this kind of, if we're lucky, and again, I think I would agree with Randall, it's about political mobilization. If we force our political leaders to use this as a crisis that actually 
as a basis for, for making some significant and constructive changes. And I would say the two most obvious ones are about creating a more equitable economy and, and, and you know, moving back away from this kind of increasing inequality that we've been seeing um, in Canada since the 90s, in the U.S., and so on since the, the early 1980s, seizing that moment to decrease inequality and rebuild the economy on that basis, but also in a way that is about, you know, responding to the climate crisis in a, in a radical and rapid form. Because I think that's where the parallel is, right? This is, the coronavirus is a fast forward example of what happens when the world collapses. Climate crisis is the slow version, but you, you end up somewhere pretty awful in either case. Can we somehow, you know, recognize that and not keep, what is it, um, Mark Carney called it, the tragedy of the horizon, right? Can, can we get over that tragedy of always thinking that the climate is, is somewhere in the future and we don't have the energy now? Can we use this crisis to, re, to rebuild in a, in a constructive and more sustainable way? I don't know, but that would be my best case. The, the irony is that uh, the world is richer now than it has ever been. And it's actually significantly richer than 10 years ago because of all the quantitative easing and, and unusual, you know, uh, policies that have pumped, you know, trillions upon trillions upon trillions of dollars into, into the global economy. Um, the thing is, it's just not distributed very <laughs> equally. And so, you know, uh, I mean, the, 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 the word that, you know, um, it resonates and is woven through all of Jackie's comments is redistribution. We, we need to, this has been a verboten word for, for decades now, since the 1970s. Um, and, and, you know, I think maybe this pandemic will possibly uh, uh, enable us to have a conversation that includes this word in some way that has a meaningful uh, kind of concept. But that's, you know, that is really uh, the, it's not going to be those who own things uh, and lots of things that, that, that put this word on the, on the debate table. Uh, it's going to be, you know, um, the, the most vulnerable uh, and those who speak on their behalf. Oddly enough, it's the middle class mm. who we now see we have a stake in this. We have, we're comfortable, but, you know, if we spread the wealth a bit more, we'll be actually safer and just as well. We'll see. Right. Well, uh, you may be pleased to note that uh, Britney Spears has been out on social media advocating for wealth redistribution in the. Wow. There you go, there sir. You go. There's so many commonalities between you and uh, Britney. <laughs> <laughs> the one thing, though, that I would just you know circle back to to say uh, the biggest the biggest hit uh, or among the biggest hits is probably a better way to put it uh, of this crisis has been on the fabric of urban life which of course has a big political economy component, but it has a big psychological component, a big social component, a big cultural component. I mean, you know, the public expressions of culture have almost, you know, has almost ceased. Uh, and so, I mean, I think um, the, the uh, one of the intriguing, uh, yet another of the intriguing is that it is a, it is a kind of a, a holistic uh, experience that we're, we're going through. Um, and I think this, uh, for those of us who teach IP, uh, this is really a reaffirmation uh, that, uh, that this subject, and this is where I'll end, beyond IP, uh, this subject uh, that we teach uh, is, uh, even though it has all kinds of, of issues about, you know, the extent of its multidisciplinarity and, and the way that it draws in other things, it is one of those places in the, in the, uh, the field of knowledge where you can actually draw together many of these different strands, which all have such huge impacts mm -hmm. on how the world is organized, uh, that, uh, that I hope, I hope uh, more of us uh, see uh, a, uh, the answers to many of our questions by 
by interrogating uh, it in, in one way or another, either as students and consumers of IP or as teachers and practitioners. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm faintly terrified about having to redesign my entire third-year political economy course online for May. Never had but on the other hand, it's a really interesting moment, right? Because as yeah. I say, we talk about things like what is money and what is debt and what is student debt and what is the gig economy and will I ever buy a house? If not, you know, why did you guys do me out of that? But obviously, I'm not going to make an obsessed, like too much focus on, on the pandemic. I think everyone needs a break. Yeah. But it's such an interesting, all those things, yeah. the big, you know, the mega corporations, what happens to Amazon now? Gig economy, how is that played out in the pandemic? We didn't even talk about real estate, right? Like one of my anxieties about the Canadian economy is still personal debt and um, the housing bubble, right? Like we're not, we don't know what's going to happen because everything's frozen. What happens when it unfreezes? I don't know. Very low interest rates. It could go, it could bubble more or you could just have a complete implosion and which would then not necessarily do in the banks, but cause major problems. Um, so, you know, really interesting because we've also, we were already seeing personal um, uh, bankruptcies and so on and delinquencies mm. increasing before. Mm. Anyway, all that to say, I agree. Political economy is a yeah, great yeah, way of, of yeah. capturing and thinking through these questions. Uh, and linking them okay well um just in case anybody uh, would like to learn more but uh, isn't able to sign up for your wonderful courses on ipe <laughs> you both produced some really fantastic blogs for the sips blog recently they're both online um so yeah if, uh, if you're listening and you're interested in, in learning well please check out sips uh, sips blog and uh, read the the latest uh, that we've got up there and uh, well thank you both very very much for your time and all your expertise it was really fascinating i learned a lot uh, i don't know whether i'm more afraid more de- no i'm not more de- i'm not more depressed i was pretty down before um <laughs> i'm at least better informed so thank you so much for your time and uh, yeah this is great hopefully Thanks, we can Bill. do it again sometime. yeah all right enjoy that thank, thank you very much take care guys bye bye